So here's my dilemma. My dilemma is I am normally the guy who preaches uh, verse by verse, verb by verb, you know, kind of whole sections by whole sections when I preach through a book. And so what we're going to be doing this morning is kind of, for, for me, it's a breakaway from my norm. I, I've been kind of looking at 1 John topically. And so this morning, I am actually going to be skipping certain sections. And I know, I know, I'm not, I'm not preaching through whole sections, but we are going to be looking at thematically. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at, you know, there was a truth test and there's an obedience test. And today we are specifically going to be looking at this, this love test. And so uh, you can look up here. We're going to be looking at 1 John 3 and reading 11 through 18. And then if you want to, you know, be prepared by looking all the way over to 1 John 4. Um, get, get ready to turn over as we get to the end of verse 18. I know it's going to be a change for some of you, and you're not going to know how to react. So, But before we uh, get into the reading, I want to do uh, kind of a word association game with you. Uh, see how well you do with this. And this is going to be able to kind of give me a psychological profile of some of you, which might be scary. Uh, but to see what is, when you see images, these images or words, what immediate, what's the first thing? And I want you to be honest. I want you, and I want you to kind of give it a shout out. Um, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you see this image? Ryan, first one. Kentucky Fried Chicken, nobody's going to talk about the various spices, right? But the first thing we think about is chicken. Now, this one, the next one might be a little bit more controversial, and maybe we'll see how this one goes. I'm surprised nobody said burnt or, you know, overpriced or anything like that, but... Yeah, so one of the first things that we think about is, is coffee, or Seattle, or West Coast Liberals. West Coast Liberals. There we go. Left Coast. Left Coast, left Coast. That's nice. Amen. All right. And here's, here, this next one will get a real pulse on where you are with Jesus. Okay? Go. <laughs> so, so we, we've got obviously chicken. We've got obviously it's, it's like coffee. This one is like it kind of tells where your heart is. Winners, losers, mm, whatever you feel about the cubbies. What, what about this next one? I heard family, relationships, Jesus, home, home. Teaching. Okay. Jesus dying on the cross. Good. What about this next one? Father, Savior. So you hear all those different things. I find it interesting. For most of us, these there's certain images are tied to certain things, right? Uh, but when most of us think about church and when we think about God, most people, uh, if we pull them, they, they immediately go to, oh, religion, 
They go to religion, or maybe if you're reformed, you might think about sovereignty or holiness. Today I want to look at, for this one, what, what, what is the defining characteristic of both God and his people, the church? What, what is that define? If you could kind of boil it down, what's a defining characteristic? Because for some reason, when people think of God, it's not what, what they really think about. And it's certainly not what people think about when they, when they are part of the church or they think about the church. They don't, they don't think about this defining characteristic. And why is it? And what can we really do about this? So for the past few weeks, we, we've been kind of looking at 1 John. Written by one of Jesus' most close and dear friends. And this letter was written to the church in... Oh, I, you are all... Ephesus. Bob gets the, the candy, the Jolly Rancher here. You betcha. You'll take the Jolly Rancher. And so in this, we have seen that there are kind of three qualities that define what Christianity as a whole is all about. It starts off with the truth test, right? The truth test. There, there are certain absolute things that we, we have to believe. And we've got to believe that, the, that there is a real problem with our hearts and our souls. There, there is a sin issue. It's not, just, it's not even a sin issue. It is a sin cancer that is really there. And it's really a problem. And Jesus is really the only thing that cures our aching hearts. That kills the cancer. But from that truth test, we move on to this, this obedience test. That as believers in God, who trust God fully with our lives, he is saying there is a certain way that you now live. Our, our lives are to be characterized by obedience to him rather than being characterized by sin. So we are called to be obedient. Even in the Great Commission, teach them to obey all, all that I've commanded you. Not just your preferences. Teach them to obey all. And then there's the last one, the love test. We must love because we have been loved. The truth test is simple. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe that the sin is, issue is really a, a cancer that kills us? And that Jesus is really the solution? Do, the obedience test is simple, but it's a little kind of intimidating. Do you, do you obey the commandments of God? So those first two are really kind of a little easier characteristics. But today we're going to be looking at the third characteristic of love. About why is it so important? So let's uh, stand and start reading. Remember, it when we get to verse 18, we are going to jump to verse 7 of chapter 4. Starting at verse 11 of chapter 3. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? 
because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Turn on over to verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God has been has made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That's a profound statement right there. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God in him. By this love, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he loved us first. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So John gives us uh, two characteristics about God that are profound and they shape the entire way that everything else that he says. He says two things, that, that God is light and that God is love. Two, two big statements. This is the message that we have heard from him and we proclaim to you, God is light. And there's no darkness in God whatsoever. God is light. He is brighter than the noonday sun on the hottest day of summer when there are clear skies. God is absolute pure light. 
And this has a huge implication for us. John spends a large part of this book or his sermon showing us what this means. If God is light and we are his followers, then we cannot walk in darkness. We cannot walk in darkness. We walk in the light just as he is light. There is no option. If we are in God and he is light, we are to walk in his light. We can't follow God who is light if we are not prepared to walk in the light ourselves. But then there's also this second statement. The second statement that John makes about God that also shapes everything. This is in 4 verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And everyone and whoever loves. In other words, that's a defining characteristic of God. But it's also whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know, does not love, does not know God. Because God is love. So God is light. God is love. And these two statements shape the whole, uh, this whole book. If God is love, then that's going to, to shape how we live. John doesn't waste any time kind of spelling it out. He doesn't get mamby-pamby on us. If we follow God who is love, then we are going to love as well. If we are truly identifying and we are in Christ Jesus, a defining characteristic of God is giving us up. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? God so loved the world And now he's saying that is a huge characteristic of who God is. If God is all about loving the world, loving you, and while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you, then that should be a defining characteristic of you. You are adopted into this family. Your whole DNA, your spiritual DNA changes by becoming a part of this family. But what does it mean that God is love? Uh, I'll be honest, this, there is so much to unpack here because we, we're very likely prone to misinterpret what love really is. I, I think even if, we, if I would privately pull the men in this room, we would have a different definition of love. If we pull the women in this room, we'd probably have a different definition of love different expressions of love. But if, you, if I would do a search, which I did this week, and tried to pull up a picture of what would describe love, this is probably what you would immediately think of. Go ahead, Brian. This is this really couple who is just entangled in this kind of mushy, gushy kind of Love, kind of a, a Hallmark kind of movie. It's kind of this um, Cupid kind of thing. They're just, they're always smiling. They're always happy. They're, they're, they're always in this embrace. You know, they're just really in their space, each other's space. And, and we look at this and we start thinking, okay, when we talk about love, we're talking about romantic love. 
uh, uh, kind of this involuntary, strong emotion towards another person. We start thinking that way, or we think of the, uh, the love that a mother has for a newborn child, that instant bond. So when we hear about that God is love, it's almost like hearing that God is like Cupid. And that we should have these mushy, gushy, uh, flowy kind of bond with one another. And, and hearing that, at least for me, uh, it, it does a couple of things. First, it frustrates me because I cannot always manufacture this. How many of you can? So if God is love and we are supposed to be love, I'm supposed to manufacture that all the time. It's impossible. For those of you who are married, you know. Those of you who have children, you know. Those of you who are in a workplace, you know. Having love and this kind of love is impossible to manufacture all the time. It also causes us to kind of want to check out because frankly, we don't want these kind of feelings even because the context is John's writing to the church in Ephesus. He's talking to the church, right? I honestly am not sure that I want to have these kind of feelings for you. And if you look around the room, you're going, yeah, I'm not so sure I want to have those kind of romantic or mushy or all over intimate kind of feelings for So what kind of love is John really talking about here? The word that he used for love was not commonly used back then. And so what, but whatever it means, it's important for us to understand because it, it gets at the heart of who God is and who we are to be as a result of who God is. So what does it mean that God is love? I appreciate this definition by Wayne Grudem. Listen to it. God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. God eternally gives of himself to others. Think of that uh, back to the John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave of himself, right? Because Jesus is part of the, the Godhead, the Trinity. And God gave not just this random person outside and sacrificed him. No, God gave of himself eternally his son. So if there's anyone who did not have to give of himself to others, it is God. God did not have to give. God owes nothing to us. And we owe everything to him. And yet, God is so generous. And it is his very nature to be generous. Grudem goes on to say, it is part of his nature to give of himself in order to bring about blessing or good for others. So that's just part of God's DNA, if you will. His very nature is is to give of himself in order to bring about blessings for others. Not for himself, but for others. And so I, I want you to think about it. At the very center of the universe is love. 
Not That's not the only thing, but at the center of the universe is love. And I love these two great uh, Christian thinkers that describes this, this ultimate reality that at the center of the universe is love. The first is Cornelius Plantinga. He said this, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorify each other. At the center of the universe, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. The persons within God exalt, commune, and defer to one another. It is the, I love how he explains it, that, that dynamic currency, it's the, the way that they work together. It is love, self-giving love. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing, nor a static thing. Not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity. A life, a kind of drama almost. If, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The pattern of, these, of this three personal life is... The, fount, the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. At the center of the universe is this divine, self-giving God. So when, when John says that God is love, he's not just saying that God is literally love. He's not making some kind of metaphysical kind of statement. It, it, it's like saying that He's not saying that like Colonel Sanders is chicken, right? Or Starbucks is coffee. He is saying love is the very defining characteristic of God. There are so many things that are remarkable about God. But John is saying that out of all of these, out of all these characteristics, we could argue that love is the most remarkable thing about our God. And John gives us the most compelling example of God's love for us in verses 8 to 10. Anyone who does not love God, does not love, anybody who does not love, does not know God. That, that's hard in your face. Anyone who does not Love does not know God because God is love. It, it, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son, you hear John 3, 16, into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So love is not only God's eternal nature, it is also a historical fact. God expressed his love by sending his one and only son to die in our place. John Stott said this, While the origin of love is in the being of God, the manifestation of love is in the coming of Christ. So God doesn't keep it stored up in this self-giving, pulsating dance of love in heaven. It is made manifest, made visible, made present. 
Love is at the very heart of the universe and in the nature of God. And the most powerful demonstration of that love is the cross of Jesus Christ. And this, my friends, is the best news that you will ever hear. Not just today or even this year, but forever. That God is love and that God eternally gives of himself to others. He is so giving that he did not even spare his own son. And this isn't just news to be heard. It is news to be believed. It is news to be celebrated. And we receive this news this, this giving love by trusting what Jesus has done for us. But there's, there's something more important to notice. At the very heart of our problem as humans is the belief that we're not sure that we can really trust God. We somehow worry that God may not have our best interests at heart we, we even seem to think that we could probably manage things even better than God if, if, if we were in his place. We start going, but do you know that person? And God goes, I know you. And yes, I know that person. And I loved you. And I love that person. And John, what John says here can free us from thinking that we have got to hold back as if we're not quite sure. God, John is saying, let me pull the linchpin. If God is love and you are in, in God, you are part of this, this relational connection, you are in the adopted family, your spiritual DNA has changed. I want to remove the linchpin and free you to love without conditions. There, there's nobody who will ever love you more than God. There is no one who cares for you more or will ever give more to you. We can trust him even when we don't understand him. We can love even when we don't know how we can really love. Love is the defining characteristic of God and we can trust him wholeheartedly and we can serve him wholeheartedly. So love is the defining characteristic of God, but love is also, number two, love is also the defining characteristic of his people. Because love is this defining characteristic of God, it must also define us. 1 John 3, 16 to 18, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for those that we like. No, 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 no. We are to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's good and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how in the world does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love the world in word or talk, but in deed, in truth. Or 1 John 4. We love because he loved us first. There, there's no other qualifications there, is there? We love because he loved us first. So what, is John, what John is saying is love is at the very heart of God. And now that we're part, we, we, are, we are now part of this dynamic fellowship of the Trinity. 
The, the, the self-giving love that is the, the dynamic currency, the pulsating currency of the Trinity now becomes our currency as well. And John doesn't leave it at an abstract level. Remember, God's love is, is God it gives of himself eternally. So guess what that love is supposed to look like? Chapter 3 gets very practical. How do we know what it looks like? It, it means following the example of the one who laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. That's how we're supposed to live our life. And for me, as I read this, it's like that is, that is a standard that is way too high. That is, I, I can't even reach that. I don't even know where to begin. I'm overwhelmed already. Because Jesus gave of himself. And he was experiencing, before entering into our time and our space by putting on flesh, he was enjoying this dynamic currency of love. And it had to be the most powerful, beautiful, life-giving thing to be a part of that. But he gave up everything for you. And I am supposed to love by giving up my life? John makes it clear. Listen, let me give you some ordinary kind of things. But they're, they're ordinary, costly things. If anyone sees, has the world's goods. Anybody have world's goods? You all got here in cards. You have bank accounts. You all have clothes on. You, you have more than really what you ever need. You, in fact, my wife and I had to have our son clear out our pantry because we had, we had to throw cans away that were too old. We have more than enough. But if we see people in need, and we have world's good, and we close our, our hearts towards those people, the question has got to be asked, how in the world does, can you say that God's love abides in you? Laying down our lives is not about the few people who rush into burning buildings or are involved in these dramatic rescues in ice-cold water. It'll look more like ordinary, everyday things. Have you ever heard of what's called the butterfly effect? Oh, there's a few of you. The butterfly effect. It's, this, it's a theory that small things like the flap of a butterfly wing in Brazil is able to set off a whole slew of things to the point where it could even cause a tornado in Texas. It starts off with one flap of a butterfly. Kenneth Chang uh, kind of put this into our context, talking about the butterfly effect. He said, the Bible often describes a similar butterfly effect for the spiritual life. According to Jesus, the spiritual butterfly effect occurs when we do small things. Making a meal. Visiting the sick. Befriending the lonely. Opening our home to a guest. Praying with a friend for insignificant people, which makes a huge difference in God's eyes. But according to Jesus, 
there's also a reverse butterfly effect. Consistently failing to display acts of kindness has a profound loss of opportunity in the spiritual realm. How do we do this? If we are to love like God loves, how do we do this? It's easy to get overwhelmed and to just say, listen, Paul, listen, in my day-to-day life, I have got kids who are at my ankles, who, who need me to carpool. I've got grandchildren. I've got this uh, job. I've got technology. I've got, all, I've got a social life. I've got all these things. How do you expect me to do this? It's, it feels very daunting to, to do this kind of love. Showing this love can be a daunting task. and We can feel like we're not, we're not always able to take on any other commitments. I just need to breathe right now. I, 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 know, I don't know if I can love or go visit like the Bible talks. So, Francis Schaeffer, a popular author and speaker, picked up on the, this love of God. He wrote a large article about these verses of Scripture, and he picked up on, on this, this amazing, profound thing that Jesus said about loving, and he said that love is the mark that Jesus gives to label a Christian not just in one area or in one locality, but at all times and all places until he returns. That is our mark. Love. And this is what he gives us, is love. Schaefer continues and says, it is as if Jesus, and I use this quote on Facebook, Jesus turns to the world and says, I've given something, I have something to say to you, world. On the basis of my authority, I give you the right. You may judge whether or not an individual is a Christian on the basis of the love that he shows to all Christians. Jesus says, let me show you my church. Here's my bride. And you are going to be able to tell whether they are true Christians by the way that they love one another. And how they even respond to a lost and broken world. Tyler Edwards says, bombs have kill radiuses. Right? Think about nuclear bombs. Totally obliterates. It has kill radiuses. Churches should have love radiuses. Anyone within 20 miles of a church should know it. So how do we do this? I'm going to give you seven, I think seven. I'm going to give you a few concrete ways. First one, welcome people like friends rather than strangers. It begins with a change of attitude, friends. A a Christ-like attitude welcomes people instead of excludes people. 
A Christ-like attitude recognize that we are all alike and that we are all sinners in need of this bountiful grace of Christ. Therefore, Romans 15, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Or, or Romans 12, love one another with brotherly, does anybody know the next word? Brotherly affection. Affection. Is that men, did you hear that? With brother, not sisterly affection. Men, with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Here's the second thing. Look to the needs of others. Acts 2 tells us that is exactly what the early Christians did right after they, they were converted. There was something dramatic that happened in their heart. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. So despite the vast variety of people and languages represented in that early church, the early church willingly, willingly entered into one another's lives and they were willing to share the necessities for life. Giving away our money and our possession, yes, requires wisdom. Yes, it requires discernment. There are times we have to say no, because that's the most loving thing. However, the general principle of looking after the poor is seen throughout Scripture as part of God's commandment to love others. Third, friends, this is an easy one. Talk to someone who is different than you. James 2 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality. In other words, there should be no divisions here in this church. It, it's easy to stay in our comfort zones and stick, uh, stick with that same circle of friends who are the same age or have similar jobs or similar uh, affinities, things that we like to do. Comfort is a wonderful blessing, but it can lead to absolute apathy and blindness in the community as a whole. If you just stay with people who are like you, you will never see needs. God shows no partiality when he saved you. So we should have an open heart when it comes to caring for all kinds of people. We also broaden our awareness and our compassion, the thoughts, the hopes, and fears, and the joys of people who are living in circumstances different than our own. Number four, invite someone over to your house for a meal. I have no time, Paul. My house is a disaster. Listen, if you don't have much experience with hosting, the idea can be daunting. It can be uncomfortable. Maybe you don't cook. Or maybe what you do cook is terrible. Do you know what has been invented? Frozen pizzas. Stouffer's. Bag salad. We can eat off paper plates. 
It doesn't have to have the fine china out. Your house doesn't need to be dusted. Here's the thing. Most people don't care if your house is a bit messy because so is theirs. And dinner is not this four-course meal topped off with the finest wines and candles on the table. You know what? They never eat that way anyway. A welcoming attitude and a communal meal are usually all that is needed to make people feel comfortable. The very act of opening up your home often leads to opening up the hearts and minds to begin forming deep and lasting bonds that build one another up. Number five, allow people to take off their masks. Mm -hmm. Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. Bear with one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. People lost in sin, struggling with sin, or going through different circumstances need a place. They need a people where they feel safe enough where they can be honest about their challenges and a place where they feel this is a safe place to confess my sin and get help. That's what the body of Christ is for. This means taking the time to just really listen to people and care about people and understand how how tempting sin really is. Loving people, however, doesn't mean to ignore or to put up with their sin. Allowing continual and unrepentant sin to go unchallenged fails to show the person what Christ-like love really looks like. Christ, for that sin, went to the cross. But we are called to be to gently, <coughs> excuse me, and lovingly help people lost in sin to see God's goodness and greatness so that they would turn to God in repentance and in faith and thereby find salvation from sin and eternal life. Got to go. Number six, pray. First Thessalonians 5 says, brothers, pray for us. Praying for someone can sometimes seem like it doesn't really count as all that loving, right? It's like it's disconnected. However, prayer involves coming before the most powerful, loving being in the entire universe whose currency, dynamic currency, is what? Love. In Christ, the prayers of believers are powerful and we can be confident that God hears and cares about what we ask for. Praying for others is actually one of the most powerful, loving things that you can do for them. And it can be done in the privacy of your own closet in your car, in a Starbucks. Or it can be done face to face. (coughs) Number seven, last one. 
smile at them. A simple act of smiling communicates warmth, communicates welcome and love, and it paves the way for a conversation. You don't have to be fake. I'm not asking for fake. But when you see people, smile. A smiling person is also, and is easier to approach, right? If there's no emotion, I'm not so sure I'm going to bear my heart with you. And if you don't have, have time to stop and, and say hello to a person, a smile says, listen, I noticed you. I acknowledged you. Most of the time, love is a struggle. It's impossible for us to love each other perfectly. Love requires patience. It requires humility. It requires kindness. And most importantly, love requires dependence on God. It can be easy to be legalistic about loving each other and just say, well, once a week we've got to invite somebody over and we've got to do this and we've got to do that. Now I've got to counsel somebody. I've got to do this. We've got to make sure that we give up X amount of dollars to this and that because we want to love people because that's what God did. No, that's not how it works. Love shouldn't feel like a burden. It shouldn't be draining because that will lead us to become cynical. And this is why we don't trust in our own ability to love. But rather we trust in the one who showed us what love truly is. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if, if God so loved us, hear these words from John. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. It was love that sent Christ to the cross. He takes our weariness away and gives us an infinite spirit that enables us to cry out to God as a child calls for their loving and their gracious father. But by God's abundant grace, we are filled with, with bountiful, unchangeable love. We are filled with the love of God. And now we have the freedom. We have the linchpin has been pulled, friends. We now have the freedom. We have the freedom to love God and the freedom to love others. Not as a way of trying to be good enough to win God's love and to win God's favor, but out of an overflowing love and gratitude for God's love in Christ Jesus. Friends, I want, I'm declaring to you today, the linchpin has been pulled. I pray that we will have a love radius of more than 20 miles. Where the love that is expressed here towards one another is beautiful and contagious. That the world looks in and goes, what is going on? And they come to know the love 
of God. And they experience the love of brothers and sisters. And our community of faith grows because we recognize the linchpin is pulled and we have freedom to love extravagantly.